I bet that unless you're working for a major government body or multinational corporation with deep pockets, you haven't given multicultural communication much thought. Personally, I've given it plenty of thought, just never any action. But as a multicultural community, are we missing a trick by neglecting the many different cultural groups around the country? I speak with Adrian Meekin, a respected leader and multicultural comms expert from Melbourne-based Loat Agency. She lays bare the reasons why multicultural comms should be a given and not an afterthought. Oprah, Steve Jobs, Andrew Denton, Arndo. To me, these guys are masters of communication. The rest of us, well, mainly you, because I'm a pro, fumble our way through. Comical examines this funny little thing called communication that can either tear us down or make us sore. Join me, I'm an amateur comedian and a communication expert. Join me and listen, learn and laugh through the experiences of my very talented guests. Welcome, Adrian. Thank you. So happy to have you here. I really have, for my entire career, really admired what professionals in multicultural comms do, although I'm ashamed to admit I've never worked with anybody in multicultural comms. It's not surprising. Isn't it? No. (laughs) Talk to me. I mean, is it, firstly, let's start with just how multicultural is Australia? Can you kind of set the scene for us? It's a massive, massive question with a massive answer. In short, (laughs) we're hugely, hugely multicultural, more than, you know, a lot of people care to admit. But we're, we're a little overdue. We're, we're, well, we're due for a new census. So the uh-huh. data that I'm, you know, reel off mm-hmm. is a bit dated, but still there's almost 30% of our country were born overseas. So that's seven and a half million people were born overseas. More interesting than that, like 50% have parents who were born overseas. And beyond that, 75% of the people who live in Australia identify with an overseas ancestry, even wow. if they were born here. 75%. Yeah, totally. So, yeah, we're hugely multicultural. Yeah. Hugely. And so what is multicultural communication? So I think about, for example, the what you just said then about 75% of Australians identifying with another ethnicity. Yeah. Is that an audience that requires multicultural comms? Like, what is it and, and where is it of, of real value? Again, you like asking the big questions. <laughs> you can break them down. I'm a bit excited, Adrian. This is the problem. <laughs> All right. So it is quite a dynamic answer, to be honest. I think and my company believe that Well, the way we've built our business is Mm -hmm. that we're a fusion of communication strategy and translation services. So when I go out into the world to learn more about the industry, Mm -hmm. I go to both. I go to translation and interpreting globalization conferences, Mm -hmm. but I also go to standard PR marketing advertising conferences. So that's, that's what multicultural comms is all about. We've actually just done a little bit of a rebrand because over the years I've discovered that we're not really multicultural marketing anymore. We're multicultural. We're an agency. Mm -hmm. We do what we have to do to reach multicultural audiences. Mm -hmm. So it's not just marketing. A lot of the work that we do is research. So when our clients come to us and say, you know, hey, we've got maybe a campaign, full scale Mm -hmm. campaign to translate Mm -hmm a lot of people will be like, I just need to translate this material and I need to get it out. So they want it 
newspapers, radio stations, SBS, you know, all the community stations. But it's so much more than that. Like we're talking about accessibility really. For a start, like is your audience actually literate in their own language? You know, have they been educated in their own language? And if we're talking about migrants who've come from refugee backgrounds, that's not often their strong suit. Or maybe you've got cultures where speaking to them in a female voice is inappropriate. Or maybe you've got cultures... Yeah, like there's so much to consider. And then when you consider the reasons why they migrated as well, like perhaps they've migrated and there's fully skilled migrants, you know, like you need to be speaking to them in a respectful tone or you're speaking to people, you know, who've come from war-torn environments and speaking to them with a tone of authority is going to scare the hell out of them. So when we speak to our clients, we're not just translating content or maybe your information is taboo. Or maybe like one of the jobs we did a few years ago was for a government department and they were pushing out information, basic information about how to be smart with your money. And there was like roughly 10 topics of information about credit, about contracts, about getting a tax file number, all kinds of basic stuff that I'm going to assume you and I grew up, you just kind of learnt this information from your family. So if you're a first-generation migrant and you're living in this new Western world, all of this information that they were pushing out was a little too far down the chain for them. They didn't know what a credit card was. They didn't understand their liability with credit. So some of our communities were having telecommunication providers do the usual door knock trying to sell internet. I mean, this is 10 years ago now, but selling internet, for example. And they were signing up every single member of the family in the same household to a different internet plan because they realised that the people in that house didn't have English as a first language and so they signed up 14-year-old daughters, they sold up Nana who lived in the house, they sold up mum and dad. And so these poor people were spending a lot of money on the internet that they'd been taken advantage of. So they had no idea what a contract was. So instead of just pushing that information out for that campaign, we ended up sitting down with them. We did heaps of community research. We found out that they thought that banks were corrupt because banks were corrupt back at home. So they didn't use banks. They didn't trust banks. We found out that they thought that credit cards were free money. They didn't know that they had to pay them back. They found out that they thought that they were too scared to sign contracts because they thought that they might get kicked out of the country because they were signing a legal document and they didn't understand what it was. Mm. There's so much basic information. Well, that answer went really a lot further than I expected it to. Um. (laughs) it's, it's, It's so funny because it's actually really complicated, isn't it? Like you think that when you're working on a marketing PR plan that there's a lot of kind of audience insights that you need to gather, but then there's a whole other level with different multicultural groups that you have to consider. And then with my agency hat on, I can't help but think that starts to add a lot of expense Right. So if I'm running a campaign, if I'm a Telstra or an Optus and I'm running a a big national campaign, that's one thing. But then to make that campaign relevant to Chinese audiences, Arabic audiences, et cetera, et cetera, now I'm spending a lot more money. And I, yep. but I think it's money well spent. But I mean, is it accepted generally in Australia that multicultural comms should always be part of your PR and marketing plans? Or is it something you have to fight for? Um, does it depend on the client? 
it depends on the client hundred yeah. percent. But to be honest over, like we've been in business since 1998 mm-hmm. and over the years we've seen most of our clients are government and not for profits yeah. and government has policy. They have to spend some of their advertising dollars on multicultural audiences. Yeah. So they're required to, and it depends, you know, team to team when you come across the team at the comms department or, you know, the PR team, it depends on how much they get it, how much they care. So yeah, it it really varies, but to be honest, it's usually a requirement, but the requirement does not necessarily favor multicultural audiences. Got you. So normally it would be rather serious stuff that must be communicated to these audiences. So does that mean from a commercial perspective, I don't know, like a think a fun brand, I don't know, Maya or David Jones, a Target, a a Kmart or what have you, would they typically consider a multicultural audience? No. Should they? Um, Is there commercial, is there, is there a commercial reason why they should that you've seen? Well, the stats don't lie. I mean, half of our country identify with a multicultural background. I think the answer is definitely yes, they should be communicating with these people. But I think big brands are just as squeezed as small brands just because they're big brands. It doesn't mean that they're a healthy business. It doesn't mean they've got a lot of money to throw around. So the answer is yes, they should be doing it. But it's, it's a really long path. We're a long way along it in terms of Australian multicultural comms. We're yeah. a long way along it from where we were. But, yeah, it, I, I personally believe it's got a long way to go. We should be talking the talk and walking the walk. We've got all of these multicultural people identifying as Australians and we're welcoming them into our country, but we don't seem to be actually talking to them when they need to be spoken to. Yeah, it kind of feels like they're left out of the fun stuff. (laughs) Like if there's a health announcement, they might get it, but the fun stuff, come on. I know. (laughs) The fun stuff. Let let them in. (laughs) (laughs) The photos, though, I will say that diversity is coming a long way in terms of what we see. You know, I know that a lot of brands now are making an effort to get visually diverse-looking environments in their marketing, which is good. It's a, it's a small step. It is, yeah, a small step but a good one. I've noticed that too. I mean, I've noticed it, and this is such a silly example, but I've got really massive curly hair and I remember <laughs> growing up never seeing anybody with really massive curly hair. I was also quite hairy and never saw hairy models, which bothered me, but, I mean, who's going to put a hairy model? We've still got a way to go for body hair, which I'm advocating Don't. for. <laughs> but with actually big hair, I never saw curls. And now I've got two daughters and my eldest has curls. We see curly girls in ads left, right, and center. How cool is that? Really cool. It makes me feel really happy. And I'm going to Google that. Oh, I don't God, know. I really? feel like oh, my, Mariah Carey, she had curly Mariah hair. Mariah Carey had curly hair. That's true. She did. Yeah. And then, and then the, <laughs> uh, you know, the, there were some stars definitely, but you were never going to open a catalog or Dolly magazine and see somebody with an Afro, very rare. No, no, so no, um, you know, no, no content on how to manage. It was just never really covered. It's funny now there's a movement. I don't know if you've been seeing it and very, another movement to add to the list of movements for the year. 
<laughs> but it was in the news a couple of weeks ago where hairdressers were coming out saying, you know, we went through the TAFE system. I've got curly hair. I didn't even come out learning how to do my own hair. It's not covered. What? Yeah. Oh, my God, but it's an actual thing. You guys need your hair cut differently. Yes, but you speak to people with curly hair and it's just one bad story after the other. And so it's something now that's just starting to gain a little bit of traction. And I think that's that's really great. That's awesome. You know, more diversity of services too. But I think, okay, well, if I'm not, if I didn't understand English or I didn't happen to be on Instagram, how would I learn about this? Yeah. How how do do people learn? Yeah. It's very interesting. I was just going to say that Instagram and social media these days is a huge opportunity for diverse audiences And unfortunately, I think powers that be in a lot of cases don't understand what a great value it could be. Where does Indigenous comms fit in this? Excuse me, I'm going to admit up front that I am absolutely naive when it comes to Indigenous comms and relations. And one of the things from the George Floyd tragedy that occurred and the Black Lives Matter movement that came after that, one of the things that I felt was real shame, because if you were to ask me about African-American culture and, and their fight for justice in America, I would know more than what I do yeah. in my own country. So I swore to myself, that's it. From now on, on, I'm unfollowing. I unfollowed a bunch of Americans and started following a bunch of first Australians that seemed to have oh, wow. some really interesting content I could learn from. Small steps, you know, but I've got a very long way to go. So I'm just going to say up front, I know nothing. So you can speak to me like a baby. But where does, I mean, do we consider Indigenous comms to be part of a multicultural comms mix? I can't answer for we. I don't. Some people do. Personally, I put them in their own category. Again, I mean, is a, is a very generalised comment yeah. because there's within Indigenous Australians, there's hundreds of cultures within that. So right. it's not just every Aboriginal person is the same as the next. They're all Aboriginal. That is an incorrect statement. So there's something like roughly 3% of the population identify as Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. Within that group, there are hundreds of different cultural groups and they all have their own different languages. Mm. They all have different and unique cultural traditions. So, you know, considering how many different languages there are, and, I mean, this is also something we chatted about earlier, but they have a lot of their languages are verbal only, so they don't have a written version of their language. And some of the cultures are physically located so remotely that... Mm. The only way, like you, we wouldn't, if you wanted us to help you translate something for them, we would have to physically go to their physical location. And we can't just walk in there. We have to be invited. And then we would have to learn their language so that we could communicate your message. So it is so cost prohibitive for Mm. groups, governments, clients to communicate with. So if someone comes to you, you just refer them on to a specialist agency. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we're on government panels, which means that, you know, I get to meet lots of other cool agencies that are doing lots of cool work. And when I meet up with some of the other agencies, there are a couple of awesome Indigenous agencies that do an amazing job. And they're on government panels, so they're pretty pretty well known in the right circles. Um, But, yeah, that's what I do. I recommend them to somebody else. 
Awesome. Okay. Do you feel that when you're speaking with clients, well, obviously with government bodies, they actually have to do a level of multicultural comms. Have you ever been in a situation where, or do you actively try to convince people to do multicultural comms? Well, I mean, I don't do non-multicultural, so no, (laughs) but I do work with other agencies and what I'm starting to see more of is mainstream agencies who want to offer our services as an add-on, you know, Mm -hmm. to hopefully win features and hopefully add more value. So it's awesome. It's I'm particularly seeing boutique agencies that are wanting to offer this, which is really cool. And why do you think that is? What's it, where's it coming from? Why do I think that it's boutique agencies or? Yeah. I think being a small business owner myself, I know how much easier it is to be dynamic when you run a small business. You know, you can just go, Hey, today we're going to try pink. And the whole whole company goes, cool, let's do pink. You know, where big agencies don't have that luxury. So that's what I think it is. Right. Okay. What about from an internal comms perspective? I mean, there'd be so many, and I'll give you an example. My mum works for a, a company that shall remain nameless, but they provide home care. And a lot of the workers are from non-English speaking backgrounds. And yep. they were dumped recently with a whole bunch of new systems. And my mum's 60 from an Arabic yep. background. She speaks English, but she's terrified of technology. Everything's moved to email. Meetings have moved to Skype. They've got a hundred different forms and stuff that comes through. She feels completely overwhelmed by it. What about internal comms? That is, shouldn't internal comms also be a massive opportunity for multicultural communications? And is it? Yes and yes. Oh, yeah. good. Yeah, it's, it's awesome actually. I would say after government and health messaging and not-for-profit messaging, that is probably our next biggest client base. We have a couple of mines, for example, One of them, a few years ago, they bought a new mine in a country that they'd never worked in before. And so they inherited hundreds of new staff that didn't speak their language in the middle of Africa. So it was pretty inaccessible as well. Like it wasn't just easy for them to start. And this company were from another completely different continent. So not only did they speak another language, but they had a whole different set of our health and safety regulations that yes. this mine in Africa now had to abide by. So we worked with them on heaps of levels, actually, first of all, on health and safety messaging, but then all the way through to, you know, softer comms like their internal staff magazine, all comms for their new mine and their, their new cultured group of workers were coming through us and it was awesome. It still is awesome. It's still a really good client of ours. Um, So, yeah, internal comms is huge, especially in our culture, you know, in Australia where we have a massive workforce like your mother's company. Is it something that a smaller business should consider? If I had a team and I only had 20 people and I had, you know, one guy who's absolutely great at what he does but there's certain areas that you just can't get through to him on, is it a consideration even one on like from an interpersonal perspective? I think so, definitely. I mean, I'm obviously in comms again. I'm a huge empath. I'm all about communicating one-on-one. I prefer it. And I would love to meet up with a client that had one team member that they needed to reach on a more authentic level. It, it makes perfect sense to me. 
And so um, in those scenarios, you could assist like this. That, that's a scenario where you can step in and help to kind of structure that conversation and assist with the approach. That's awesome. Absolutely. Yeah. Like we've worked with a lot of councils, yeah. um, sort of sort of area, um, on creating guidelines and opportunities because, you know, councils in some areas of, you know, particularly Melbourne and Sydney in the outer areas have got huge multicultural communities that are constantly growing and evolving. And they really need everyone in that community to be singing out of the same hymn book in terms of how they're all communicating with each other. And, you know, the types of services that should be available to everyone in that community across the board, what, regardless of what language you speak, regardless of your education level, you name it. Like years ago, we did this really interesting one as well in the outer suburbs of Melbourne. From um, caseworkers and social workers, they discovered that some of their newly arrived migrants had never seen a supermarket before and they didn't know what was edible and what wasn't. And so, you know, they were going into supermarkets with not very much money and finding the cheapest thing they could find, and that's what they would eat. Beyond that, they were in the fresh fruit aisle, didn't recognise a single thing because that's not the fresh fruit and veg that they had where they grew up. Really, really basic stuff that we take for granted. And so with that council, we made this awesome booklet. It was so simple and so cool. And we took photos of each of the items of food. And then we had a grid system and there was like pictures of whether it should or shouldn't be cooked and how you could cook it and what it should look like when it's cooked. And so it was just this cool grid system. Yeah, it was so simple and so satisfying. Like these people were empowered by such a simple comms tool. It was amazing. Oh, you are on such a interesting and heartwarming side of comms, I have to say. It's it's so fascinating and I would love to do some work with with yourself and your agency and think about, well, how can we push our clients to consider audiences outside of the ones that we just assume are the yeah. biggest or the most important? Well, actually, that's something else I was going to mention is that when we work with our clients, so many of our clients will say, I need to translate this into the top five languages. And we're like, cool, but who's your audience? And they're like, oh, you know, I'm in mental health and we've got this, we're trying to push out information about how important mental health in the elderly is. And we're like, okay, cool. So you don't actually need the top four languages because they're maybe not elderly or maybe you have other communities which have a far greater need for your information. And so we'll actually work through that with them as well. But what happens, Adrian, if the message does not suit the audience? So, for instance, you've used that example of communicating with the elderly around the topic of mental health, but that may not even be a topic in the first place that matters to that particular culture. Yeah. Well, I mean... There would be stuff that gets lost in translation, right? Like is there a point where you say this is just not, you can't just translate a document and tick a box, it's not going to work? Definitely. There's actually been plenty of occasions where we've worked with clients and gone, you know what, the campaign that you've designed is not going to work and that, you know, we actually need to change this. Whether it evolves into a research project for them to find out what to do next year rather than just push out something this year or whether it becomes a, an animation campaign as opposed to 
more heavy information campaign. Or, you know, like sometimes we've designed campaigns that are important to be absorbed quietly. Like, for example, we did a campaign with Crime Stoppers about we needed to communicate to international students that abuse is not to be tolerated. Hmm. So we needed to reach international students with information that would be quickly absorbed and information that they could absorb in a way that they're currently using their media. So, you know, we were like, cool, they've all got mobile phones. They don't necessarily all have computers, but they do all have mobile phones. So we designed a really simple animation and we, instead of, well, as well as doing audio, we also put subtitles on so that they could actually absorb the message without audio. Cause if they're sitting on the train or mm-hmm. if they're, you know, sitting in a share house and they don't want people to hear them educating themselves about abuse. So all kinds of things that, you know, we end up changing a campaign specifically for our audience. Fantastic. Makes perfect, perfect sense. And I can already think of three different opportunities already within my client base that I think would be really worth stopping to have a think about, you know, where can multicultural comms fit in here? Yeah. And, you know, it's what's surprising is that when I think of my entire career, I've been doing this for 20-something years, I don't think I can think of a single campaign, maybe one, maybe one, a telco, that involves multicultural comms. And maybe that's because I haven't worked much in government relations because it seems heavily driven by government relations, but I still feel like, I don't know, maybe, maybe this is the ethical side or the moral side of me that thinks, okay, we shouldn't be excluding different groups and they're enormous groups in this country. They've got huge buying power as well. Like beyond their human rights needs, they've got huge buying power. And I think that a lot of people overlook that. I've been pushing this for years and years and years. I really, really want my business and my client base to expand more into that area. Yeah. But it has been like like pushing something uphill with a fork stick. (laughs) (laughs) That's cross-cultural, completely understand. But, you know, I... On that, right, so trying to convince people to think more about multicultural comms, are we talking here different channels or is it the same communication channels, just different languages or messages or images? So what do you mean? What are the mediums? What are the, what are the ways in which if I'm speaking to a multicultural audience, is it also changing the vehicle I'm communicating with him? Is it via social? Is it the newspaper? Is it the same newspaper that I'd use? Is it the daily telly, but with a different message and a different image? What are the different ways that multicultural comms can work? In exactly the same ways that mainstream can work. And it's as varied as our clients' desires, as our clients' budget, Mm -hmm. as their audience as communication preferences, you know, what's available to them. So like the bloat has really evolved over the last 20 years. In the early days, we were very heavy in the media. Every campaign we did was on radio and in ethnic press. And that's because that's where the founders of the company really came from. So they, they both came from a traditional media background. But I mean, as you know, you know, the last 20 years has just exploded in terms of communication channels available to people. But in terms of multicultural comms, I would find that in most cases, grassroots 
is often the best. Like a lot of communities don't have newspapers. The Chinese community have hundreds of newspapers and used to read a lot of them. But in recent research that we've been doing, I've had people, particularly younger Chinese people, so, you know, under 30 and 40, who've said to me, oh, no, I don't read the papers, too much advertising. I'm like, all right, so we've done that one, have we? (laughs) We've overused it. So, and then in some areas, like we've even used the local leader where we've negotiated to put multicultural information into the local leader. So like um, when, for example, road closures and stuff like that, we've negotiated with the leader and we've created an ad, a full page ad that is like one portion in English and then another portion in the language that we're targeting. And the leader's down with that because they're there to reach their local community because we know that even though the majority of the leader is in language, we know that, you know, the leader gets read and reread and left around And a lot of these people have got, a lot of multicultural people have got kids or friends or neighbours who speak English as their first language. And so that ad has some cut through, even though it's in an English publication. You know, we've got so many different channels available to us. Um, Radio used to be strong, but it depends on where you are, you know. Like if we're going to put some information onto 3CR, for example, it's not necessarily going to get to people in outside of that physical signal. So every campaign is always different in terms of the channels that we pick. In the 10 years that I've been running the business, I would say I've never rolled out the same campaign twice. And I wish I could. (laughs) (laughs) Nope, you got to work for it, lady. (laughs) Clearly. Yeah. That's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that with me, Adrian. Honestly, I know that my questions may have sounded so basic, but I have to be honest and say that it is such a specialised area one that I've never worked in, one that I'm fascinated by and one that I'd love to do more with. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Have have a great day. You as well. And, and, and sorry about your lockdown. Oh, thanks. <laughs> and that's Comical for this week. If you'd like to join the show, suggest a topic or ask me a question, hit me up on Instagram at Maria Daggle or email me comicalpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. See ya.